The following teaching is possible thanks to the friends and partners of Spirit and Truth Fellowship International. Well, God bless you, and welcome to this teaching of the month by Spirit and Truth Fellowship. I'm John Shaneheit, and this month I'm going to be teaching about the unique day of Zechariah chapter 14, verse 7. Now, as we go into this teaching, this teaching is going to be in three parts. In the first part, I want to talk a bit about why God writes the Bible the way he does. Why does it seem to be so scattered what's going on? The second part, I'm going to be explaining the flow of events in the end times, just so that we can understand it. By the way, there is a chart that goes with this teaching. And if you want to follow along in the chart, then you can go to the Spirit and Truth Fellowship page, our website, and associated with teaching will be a link to the chart. And then the third thing I want to do is go right to Zechariah chapter 14. Let's talk about the context. Let's talk about the unique day. And let's talk about what that means. So that's where we're going in this teaching. And let's begin with talking about why God authors the Bible the way he does. You know, you don't have to read the Bible for very long before you realize that individual subjects in the Bible are scattered. Reading the Bible is not like reading an encyclopedia. You know, like an encyclopedia, you look up a person like, say, George Washington, and he's all in one little little nifty article, all in one place. In the Bible, you go to look up a subject, and it's scattered all over the Scripture, and it makes it hard to learn the Bible. It requires time and discipline and having a good memory and and kind of learning as you go. And it takes a number of years before you really get a feel for the flow of, of the Bible and putting all the pieces together. And why does God do that? Well, obviously, he's probably got some reasons we don't understand, but definitely there are some reasons we do understand. And one of them is that it's our journey into the text that helps us demonstrate our love for God. You know, do we do we love God enough to continue to spend time with Him, to continue to read the Word, to continue to try to understand what it means? I mean, there's a demonstration of our love for God. Also, there is a maturity as we learn over time. There's a maturing process that happens in the believer. And I think that maturing process is also something that's important. You know, God says in Proverbs chapter 25 and verse 2, he says, it's the glory of God to conceal a matter, but it's the glory of kings to search out a matter. And it's really true that when you and I go into the word of God and take the time to search out what God has placed in various parts throughout the scripture, that that really is the glory of God. And and furthermore, uh, you know, one thing I've learned about knowledge is, generally speaking, if knowledge comes too easily, if, if, if somebody gains knowledge very easily, then they tend to hold it in contempt a little bit. You know, it, knowledge gained too easily lends itself to pride and a, and a smug attitude that really we don't want to develop when we develop our knowledge of God. We want to have a, a real humble attitude and a great appreciation for what God has done. Now, by the way, has God told us that he has scattered things around the scripture. Yeah, he has actually. Well, sure, we just read Proverbs 25 too. It's the glory of God to conceal a matter. 
So we know God has taken some time to conceal things. But he's kind of told us that he's scattered things in bits and pieces and portions throughout the word. But that is usually hidden in a translation that's not necessarily the best. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1, please. And we're going to read Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2 when I'm reading out of the REB, the Revised English Version of the Bible, which, by the way, you can get from Spirit and Truth online or in our phone and tablet apps, or there's a hard copy available. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 says, God, having spoken from old times to the fathers through the prophets in many parts and in many ways, has at the end of these days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things. So here's Hebrews chapter 1, right in verse 1. And what's it saying? God spoke from old times to the fathers through the prophets in many parts. <laughs> yeah, well now, why haven't I seen this earlier? Well, I read out of versions where it was translated, spoken through the prophets at many times and in many ways. And there are versions that translate it this way. However, as we study a little deeper, we find out that it's much more likely that what Hebrews 1.1 is saying is not that God spoke at different times, but rather that God spoke in bits and pieces. Let me run through some lexicons and some scholastic support for this. Uh, Freiburg's analytical lexicon of the New Testament says, quote, in many parts or portions, comma, bit by bit. Greek lexicon um, of the New Testament based on semantic domains by Lul Nita has, quote, pertaining to that which occurs in many parts, fragmentary in many parts. The BDAG Greek-English lexicon has, quote, of prophetic writing in various parts, end quote. The vocabulary of the Greek New Testament by Moulton and Milligan says that polymeris, which is the many parts, it says, quote, denotes in many portions as distinguished from polytropos in many manners. So in other words, in many parts and in many different ways. Uh, the Brill Dictionary of Ancient Greek, by the way, this is very late uh, Greek lexicon done in 2015, says it's constituted from many parts. And of course, a critical lexicon in concordance to the English and Greek New Testament by E.W. Bullinger has, quote, consisting of many parts manifold by many fragments, unquote. In the Complete Word Study Dictionary New Testament by Spiro Zodiates, he says, by or in many parts that God gave the revelation Polymeros refers to the incremental and progressive manner in which God disclosed himself up until the appearance of his son. It is fragmentary piece by piece. The pulpit commentary has the translation in many portions and in many modes. And the pulpit commentary comments that polymeros and polytropos, meaning in many portions and in many ways, are, quote, not merely alliterative redundancies. The writer's usual choice of words forbids this supposition, nor is meros of the first adverb to be taken, as in the AV, in other words, as in the King James, to denote portions of time. This is not the proper meaning of the compound, nor for the same reason does it denote various degrees of prophetic inspiration. It was not one utterance, 
but many utterances given in fact at diverse times, though it is to the diversity of the utterance and not of the times that the expression points. So in other words, we've got really, really good uh, lexical and commentary support that the Greek word here is not saying in many, at many different times and many different ways, but rather that the revelation has been given in many parts and in many ways. Sometimes it was spoken to the prophet audibly. Sometimes God showed the prophet a vision. God gave the revelation to the prophets in different ways. So that's what Hebrews 1.1 1, 1 is saying. God, having spoken from old time to the fathers through the prophets in many parts and in many ways. And <laughs> that's exactly what we see when we look up subjects in the Old Testament. What we see is that different subjects are scattered. So, for example, now in this teaching, we're studying the unique day of Zechariah 14, which is couched it in the revelation of the end times, the great tribulation period in the Battle of Armageddon. And you can't just go to a chapter somewhere in the Bible and look up the Battle of Armageddon. It's scattered in many, many, many different locations. And so the, the good news, I guess, is not that God has done that, but at least he's told us that he's done that so we can expect that to be the way that God gives his revelation. He gives it in scattered bits and pieces. So that concludes the first section of this teaching, which is, you know, as we get into Zechariah and as we get into material on the end times or any other subject for that matter, why does it seem to be scattered instead of just being in one place where you can read about it? And certainly at least God has told us very clearly in Hebrews 1.1, look, I spoke to the prophets in, in many parts and in many ways, or as I think it was Freiburg's lexicon said, in bits and pieces. And that's certainly how we read it. So now let's go on to part two of this teaching, which is kind of a, a discussion of the flow of events that we're going to see in the future. And again, if you want to print the chart out that's associated with teaching, I invite you to do that. But as we move through time, the first thing that's going to happen to us, the church, is the rapture. And I've done a teaching on this recently where, I've, you know, we've gone to scripture and shown the church is going to be raptured up into heaven and we will be in heaven for the seven, peer, uh, seven years of the tribulation. And then uh, shortly after, and the Bible is not clear, the Bible does not say how long after the rapture that seven-year tribulation countdown starts. So let's go to Daniel chapter, uh, Daniel chapter 9. Let's go to Daniel chapter 9. And we will start in Daniel chapter 9 on verse 24. We're going to read 24, 25, the next following verses. And I don't want to take the time to exegize this section. I, I want to get to the conclusion of the section. But what we're looking for here is that we know that there's a seven-year tribulation period that'll be upon Israel after the rapture. And Daniel chapter 9 tells us when that seven-year period starts. So Daniel chapter 9 verse 24 starts 70 weeks and the scholars and the context, uh, the context have made it clear that this is a week of years, or in other words, 70 
times seven years or 490 years. That's the total time period we're talking about here, 490 years. So Daniel 9.24 starts out, 70 weeks are decreed on your people and on your city to finish disobedience and to make an end of sins and to make reconciliation for iniquity and to bring in everlasting righteousness and to seal up the vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. Verse 25, by the way, this is an angel talking to Daniel, giving revelation to Daniel. Verse 25, know therefore and discern that from the going forth of the commandment to restore and build Jerusalem to the anointed one, the ruler will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be built again with street and moat, even in troubled times. Well, except there's a problem here. The angel had just told Daniel there'd be 70 weeks. Now he says seven weeks and 62 weeks. Well, that equals 69 weeks, but not 70. <laughs> Verse 26, then after the 62 weeks, the anointed one will be cut off, and this is the death of Jesus Christ, and we'll have nothing. And the people of the ruler who will come, and this is very important, the ruler who will come, you and I know as the Antichrist, will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will be with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. Verse 27, our operative verse, and he, this ruler who will come, he is the Antichrist, he will make a firm covenant with the many, the many people in Israel for one week. Okay, there's your last seven years. So we had at the very beginning 70 weeks, that's 490 years. Then the angel broke it down into seven weeks and 62 weeks. And so that's um, that's 69 weeks. What happened to the last week? Oops, here it is. And And why would there be a break? See, in Daniel... In the book of Daniel here, chapter 9, there's no explanation for why the 69 weeks is divided from the one final week. You have the first 69 weeks, and then you have the space, and he makes a covenant with the many for one week. And you and I know that's because of the administration of the grace of God, the administration of the sacred secret to which you and I belong, to which in which you and I live, was not known about in the Old Testament. It's very clear in the New Testament that this was a secret. And so the rapture was part of the sacred secret. The rapture belongs to the church. The, the Christian church started on the day of Pentecost and will end with a rapture that the age of grace, the administration of grace, was not known in the Old Testament or the Gospels. And as a result, it wouldn't be mentioned in the book of Revelation. So now, verse 27 says, He, the Antichrist, will make a covenant, a firm covenant, with the many for one week, seven years. Where are you and I? We've been raptured into heaven. What is the time period between the rapture and this covenant with the Antichrist and the Bible? Uh, it doesn't say specifically, but it can't be long. It has to, for the tribulation, to be seven years. And remember, a year can be any part of a year. Then the rapture has to be less than a year 
before this covenant with the Antichrist. So basically then we're, we're moving through history. You and I, here we are on earth. Then bang, here comes the rapture. Then less than a year after the rapture is going to be this covenant with the Antichrist, which will start the tribulation, which will last seven years. So that is, is what is going on there. Then at the end of the seven years, what happens? Well, what happens is the Battle of Armageddon. So let's talk about that. The Battle of Armageddon is mentioned many different ways throughout the scripture. It's only called Armageddon in the book of Revelation, but it is called the wine press, for example, in the book of Revelation and in Isaiah chapter 63, and it's mentioned in different ways throughout scripture. If we go to Revelation chapter 19, and what happens in Revelation 19 is God begins to give us a very smooth moving forward of what's going to happen in Revelation, the end of Revelation 19. There's the Battle of Armageddon. Revelation chapter 20 starts with Satan being chained. Then we go into the resurrection of the just. Then we have uh, a space where Satan is loosed in the millennial kingdom. And then he rounds up an army and he attacks Jerusalem. Fire comes down from heaven, destroys Satan and his army. And then you have the white throne judgment. And then you have the everlasting kingdom come down from heaven. So if you read Revelation 19 through to Revelation chapter 21, uh, it all runs very smoothly, very chronologically, one event right after the other. So we go to Revelation chapter 19, and here in verse 11, I saw the heavens open and look a white horse, and he who was sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. And so he's coming down to earth from heaven. Verse 14, and the armies that are in heaven followed him. Uh, verse 15, out of his mouth comes a sharp broadsword, so that with it he can strike down the nations. And then it says in chapter 19, verse 15, and he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. And again, you can trace the word winepress back to the Battle of Armageddon, for example, in chapters like Isaiah 63. And then verse 17, an angel is standing in the sun and he cries with a loud voice, come and, and be gathered to the great banquet of God so that you can eat the flesh of kings. And verse 19 of Revelation 11, I saw the beast and this is a different name for the man you and I know as the Antichrist and, and then his kingdom with him. And the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And that war is the battle of Armageddon. Verse 20, the beast was taken and with him the false prophet who did the signs in his sight with which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. Verse 21, and the rest were killed with the sword of him who sat on the horse, etc. So this is then the battle of Armageddon. So we have the rapture, then we have a covenant between Israel with the Antichrist. Then you've got seven years of tribulation, which end with this battle, the Battle of Armageddon. And then uh, right immediately after the Battle of Armageddon, there's a whole bunch of things that happen at one time. There's going to be the first resurrection. There's going to be the sheep and goat judgment. But before those things can happen... There has to be something on earth, and that something on earth is the unique day of, of Zechariah chapter 14, verses 6 and 7. And why is that? 
because if you think about the Battle of Armageddon and you make a draw a vertical line up until the Battle of Armageddon, the Earth is a complete mess. You know, the water's polluted, the air's polluted, the, the, the soil is polluted. There's so many things that have gone wrong with this earth. And then as soon as Christ starts his kingdom, his millennial kingdom, like when you have the resurrection of the just that's described in Ezekiel 37, and, you know, the, these just people like, you know, Abraham and Sarah, you know, and, and these, these great people get up from the dead. And it says in Ezekiel 37 that they're brought back to the land of, of Israel. Let's actually just go and see that. Go to Ezekiel chapter 37. And we will start in Ezekiel 37, verse 11. Then he, God, said to me, Ezekiel, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. God, by revelation, had in a revelation vision, had taken Ezekiel into a valley that was full of dry old bones. And, you know, what, what, is the, what are these bones? And here he says, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We're cut off completely. <laughs> now, why, why would the people of Israel and Judah be saying our hope is lost, our bones are dried up, we're cut off? Well, by the time Ezekiel is writing this, where is Israel? Well, Israel's gone. Israel got, you know, they, they turned to idolatry in 722 BC. They were destroyed, destroyed by the Assyrian army. They were scattered over the ancient Near East. They were gone by 720 BC, and they're still gone. The ten lost tribes of Israel are still lost. And where was Judah by the time of Ezekiel 37? Well, it was gone too. <laughs> they had continued to sin. Nebuchadnezzar had come across the Fertile Crescent and, and you know, burned the temple, burned Jerusalem to the ground, and, and a number of carrying away, four carryings away, had carried the people off to, uh, to the various parts of Babylon, the Babylonian Empire, and only left the poorest people of the land back in Judah. So where was the the kingdom of Judah. Where was the kingdom of Israel? They were gone. Did it look like they were coming back? Well, by the time Ezekiel's writing here, Israel had been gone for 150 years plus, and Judah had been gone. It didn't look like it was ever going to rise up and be able to attack the Babylonian empire. And so basically, what were they saying about their country, about themselves? Our bones are dried up. Our hope is lost. We're cut off completely. That's how they feel. Now, here's God. Does God say, well, I'm going to restore your kingdom on earth? No. When I say that, I mean before the Lord Jesus comes. And the answer was no. Here's what he did say. Verse 12, therefore prophesy and tell them, this is what the Lord Yahweh says. Behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you will know that I am Yahweh when I've opened your graves and caused you to come up out of your graves, O my spirit, O my people. I will put my spirit in you and you will live. And I will place you in your own land. That's the land of Israel. Then you will know that I, Yahweh, have spoken it and done it, says Yahweh. So what does God say? What does Yahweh say? Yahweh says, look, there's a time coming. And we know this from Jesus's teaching in John 5. This is called the first resurrection or the resurrection of the righteous. 
And what's going to happen? Jesus Christ is going to come back from heaven, just like we read in Revelation 19. He's going to conquer the earth. And when he conquers the earth, he's going to set up his kingdom on earth. And the graves are going to be opened. And then people are going to come up out of the graves. All those wonderful, righteous people of the Old Testament are going to come up out of their graves. And they're going to come back to the land of Israel and... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, I run towards Israel. Um, I have heard it said that litter is the national bird of Israel. There is there's litter everywhere and frankly, all over the world. There's there's horrendous litter all over the world and the soil is ruined in the air. I mean, there's some cities where, you know, you, you get the weather report and it tells you whether you can breathe that day or not. Uh, uh, there's just been such destruction of the earth. So when God says, you know, I'm going to place you in your own land, you know, Abraham isn't going to get up out of the grave and look around and say, hey, look, can I die for a little while longer? I, you know, give you guys time to clean this place up for Pete's sake. I don't want to be here. You know, that's, that's not what will happen. So see, there's this unique day. Christ comes down and fights the battle of Armageddon. And then before he, Christ sets up his kingdom and before people get raised from dead and brought back to the land, the earth has to be purified. And that's going to be a unique day. And we'll look at that again in just a, a second here on the third part of the teaching. Then after the earth is purified and brought back to a pristine condition, then we have the resurrection of the just, which is the first resurrection that's in Revelation chapter four. And we just read about it in Ezekiel. And you also have the sheep and goat judgment, because when Christ comes down and fights the battle of Armageddon and conquers the earth, well, it kind of makes for an interesting time because not everybody on earth is dead and Christ is going to set up his kingdom on earth. So you've got all these people that are on earth and Christ sets up his kingdom. Well, Christ doesn't want to let evil people into his kingdom. Evil people have already ruined the earth. Evil people have already hurt each other and hurt good people, hurt God's people. Why would Christ allow evil people into his kingdom? He's come down. He's conquered the earth. There's people still living here. What's going to happen to them? And Christ talks about that in Matthew 25, and it's called the sheep and goat judgment. So let's go to Matthew chapter 25. Now we're going to start in Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. But before we do, Matthew 25 has not been well understood. And the reason it hasn't been well understood, at least in large part, now there's, there's all, actually, there's a lot of reasons it hasn't been well understood. But the fact of the matter is that Matthew, one of the reasons Matthew 25 has not been well understood is because of the chapter marking, verse uh, chapter 25, that in Matthew 24, verse 3, we read, And as he, Christ, was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So now in verse 4, Jesus answered them. It says, And Jesus answered and said to them. And Jesus' answer takes all of chapter 24 and all all of chapter 25. And what happens is people read to the end of chapter 24 and then stop. And so they don't see how chapter 25 fits 
with Christ's answer. The question was, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So in chapter 24, Christ talks about wars and earthquakes and how believers are going to be tortured and tormented and killed and, and how you've got to stand faithful. And he talks about this through chapter 24. And then you start in chapter 25. And it'd be nice if chapter 25 had never been there, if it had just been a continuation of chapter 24, because as Christ is talking, talking about what are going to be the signs of your coming and of the end of the age, he says, verse 1, at that time. You want to know what's going on at the end of the age? I'll tell you. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who, have t- having taken their lamps, went out to meet the bridegroom. And then he tells this parable of the, uh, of the virgins, of the ten virgins. And what happened in the parable? Well, five were wise and five were foolish. And the five foolish ones, their oil ran out, their lamps went out. And so they left the area to go buy oil. Verse 10, while they were going away to buy some, the bridegroom came. Who's that? That's Christ. He's coming to conquer the earth. The ones who were prepared went in with him to the marriage feast. The door was shut. Later, the other virgins also came saying, Lord, open the door for us. But he answered and said, truly, I say, I don't know you. And he says, watch, therefore, because you don't know the day nor the hour. He's talking about what are the signs of your coming in the end of the age? And he says, and he gives them some signs, you know, wars, earthquakes, famines, that kind of thing. And then he says, and let me tell you the way it's going to be. You know, if you think you're going to dawdle around and not make a decision for the Lord, you know, people that don't make a decision for Christ, they're going to, oh, well, you know, right now I still just want to kind of live life a little bit, you know, and I can get saved later. What's the point of the parable? Verse 10, and the door was shut. And then when the other people showed up, Christ said, I do not know you. He's, and so Christ says, you don't know the day of the hour. So what's Christ is talking about at the end of the age, and he's basically saying, make sure you get there. Don't mess around and, and not make the commitment you need to make to get born again so that you, you are saved and you're in the kingdom and you're in the wedding feast. And then he tells another parable called the parable of the talents. And then he says, because then he goes on and says, and look, the kingdom of heaven is like, okay, what will be the sign you're coming in the end of the age? Well, the kingdom of heaven is going to come. Let me tell you what it's going to be like. And it's like a man who entrusted property to his servants. And he gave different amounts of property to different servants. And the ones that were faithful, he rewarded And the servant who wasn't faithful with the talent he'd been given wasn't rewarded. And what's Christ teaching there? He's saying, okay, look, you want to get into the kingdom. That's the parable of the virgins. You want to get into the kingdom. But not only that, the parable of the talents, when you get into the kingdom, you want to have something to show for it. You don't want to just get in by the skin of your teeth. You want to make sure that you have rewards in the kingdom, that the Lord of the of the kingdom, which would be God, and then Jesus, you know, how does it say it in the parable? Enter into the joy of your Lord. So, you know, so the beautiful thing, the disciples say, what'll be the, the signs of your coming and of the end of the age? And Christ gives them some signs. And then he says, number one, make sure you get in. Number two, live your life in such a way that when you do get in, you've got rewards to show for it, that you've taken the talents you were given and you've used them to to be in the joy of your Lord and have a position 
that you'd be blessed to have in the kingdom. And then he stops telling parables and he goes back into the historical development, if you will, of what's going to happen at the end of the age. And he so verse 31 of Matthew 25, he says, but when the son of man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Yeah, because Christ is king. <laughs> he's, he's going to sit on his throne. Verse 32, and all the nations will be gathered before him. Wait a minute. What nations? Christ is going to come in his glory, fight the battle of Armageddon, conquer the earth, and sit on his glorious throne. All the nations are going to be gathered before him. <laughs> Great. What nations are these? This is after the battle of Armageddon. You got the tribulation in the battle of Armageddon. What nations are there? Well, you know, there's various reasons that Different, different denominations don't understand the sheep and goat judgment. If you believe that when you die, you go to immediately to heaven or hell, then the sheep and goat judgment doesn't make any sense. Also, uh, there are denominations who teach that between the, the tribulation and the battle of Armageddon, everyone on earth dies. That's not the case. Everyone on earth does not die. If you believe that everyone on earth will die by the end of the battle of Armageddon, then the sheep and goat judgment doesn't make any sense. If you coordinate Matthew 25 with Isaiah 63 uh, and Isaiah 65, when Christ conquers the earth, there are still living human beings here. Well, some of them are good, some of them are bad. And Christ just can't let the, the bad ones just come into his kingdom. They ruined this earth. He's not going to let him ruin his kingdom. So what he does, all the people are gathered in front of him, verse 33, and he divides them into sheep, good people, and goats, the bad people. And the goats get thrown into Gehenna, the lake of fire. If you read uh, Matthew 25, 31 to 43, the, the good people are allowed into the kingdom. The sheep are and the goats um, are thrown into Gehenna. And then you have Christ's millennial kingdom on earth, and we'll talk about that when we get into part three. And then and Satan during that time is bound, Revelation chapter 20, verse 1, Satan is bound, and then he's released. And then there's a fiery war, and that fiery war in the book of Revelation, well, again, let's just go there and read that. It'll make it clearer. So we're back in, we're in Revelation chapter 20, verse 7, and as Revelation chapter 20 opened, Satan was bound for a thousand years. You had the resurrection of the just, the, the wonderful people like Abraham and Sarah who get up from the dead, and they live with Christ on earth a thousand years. Verse 7 of Revelation 20 says, when the thousand years are finished, the adversary will be loosed out of his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for war, the number of whom is as the sand in the sea. Who is alive at this period that the adversary could deceive? Not you and me, and not the people that have been raised from the dead like Abraham and Sarah, but all the descendants of those sheep, those natural people that were allowed on the earth. And those sheep had babies, and some of those babies, as they grew up and had children of their own, and the population of the earth multiplied, then the adversary is going to be able to deceive those people. In verse 9, and they went up over the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp, the holy ones, and the beloved city, and fire came down out of heaven and devoured them. And that's the final war. And notice that in the scripture, it doesn't have a name. This is at the end of the thousand-year millennial kingdom. The city of Jerusalem is being attacked by the satanic army. 
And all the Bible has to say about it is fire came down out of heaven and devoured them. You know, when, when it's kind of funny. When you don't give something a name in Scripture, people don't have a place to put it. And so this doesn't get understood, well understood. And you, lots. I mean, for years and years and years, I heard, well, you know, Armageddon is the final battle. No, it's not. <laughs> this is the final battle. Our, this is chapter 20. Armageddon happened in chapter 19. See, if we just start reading it, chapter 19, verse 11, and read right through, you got the battle of Armageddon, you got Satan chained, you got the resurrection of the just, you got the thousand years, you got Satan loosed, and then you have the final battle. <laughs> and the final battle takes all of like nine words or something. And fire came down out of heaven and devoured them, and we're done. <laughs> That's, but that's the final battle between God and the devil, and the devil's thrown into the lake of fire, and, and the devil's army is destroyed. And then you have the resurrection of the unjust, the second resurrection. And then after that, you have God's Revelation 21, God's everlasting city come down out of heaven. This is how, this is kind of, an, and again, if you get the chart, you'll be able to see this in chart form. And what I want to point out again, because this is where we're going back to, is when Christ comes down and fights the Battle of Armageddon, associated with the Battle of Armageddon, basically immediately after Christ conquers the earth, but before the sheep and goat judgment and before the first resurrection, the earth has to be prepared for people. You can't have the first resurrection and all these thousands or maybe millions of people get up from the dead in the first resurrection and the earth is a complete mess like it is today. The earth has to be changed. And with that, let's go back to Zechariah chapter 14 again. Now, in reading Zechariah 14, let's just go ahead and start in verse 1 and see if we can pick up the context. In Zechariah 14, it opens up, Behold, a day of Yahweh is coming, when your spoil will be divided in your midst. It's talking about Jerusalem. A day of Yahweh is coming. And so we're talking about when Jerusalem is attacked, this will occur in what you and I call the Great Tribulation. Jesus Christ talked about it in Matthew chapter 24. By the way, if you want to read about how horrible the tribulation is going to be, besides reading the book of Revelation itself, you can read the prophecies about it, and I have an extensive commentary on that in the REV commentary on Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. So here God says, A day of Yahweh is coming when your spoil will be divided in your midst. Verse 2, For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured. The houses plundered and the women raped. Half the city will go out into captivity, but the rest of the people will not be removed from the city. So this is God talking about something that's going to happen in the tribulation period. And Christ knew about the tribulation period, taught about it in chapters like Matthew chapter 24, Luke chapter 21, Mark chapter 13, warning his disciples about the tribulation period and how to handle the tribulation period. And it's very interesting what he said, because, you know, there's great evidence. I mean, we know that Christ would often say, it is written, as it is written, as it is written. And he would quote the Old Testament, man, the, Jesus Christ knew the Old Testament cold, and he really 
really understood it and he knew both its meaning and, and how to apply it in life, which only comes from reading about it, thinking about it. You know, he, you can just see him reading Zechariah chapter 14, for I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle and the city will be captured and the houses will be plundered and the women will be raped and half the city will go out into captivity. This is not going to be a good time. What is Jesus going to do with this information? Well, he's going to communicate it to his disciples and warn them. Absolutely. Let's go to Luke chapter 21. And Luke chapter 21, verse 7 is very similar to Matthew chapter 24, verse 3. And they, Christ's disciples, asked him, saying, Teacher, so when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to come to pass? And then Christ says in verse 8, Take heed that you're not led astray. And then he tells them in verse 9, You're going to hear about wars, and don't be terrified, and there'll be group versus group, and kingdom versus kingdom. Verse 11, there'll be earthquakes, famines, plagues, terrors, and great signs in heaven. And then you're going to be persecuted. Verse 12, and you'll be even handed over by your parents, brothers, relatives, and friends. Uh, some of you will be put to death. You'll be hated by everyone for my name's sake. But then verse 20, look what Christ says. But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that her desolation is drawn near. How would Christ know Jerusalem's going to be surrounded by armies? Zechariah 14 says so. How would Christ know that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed, is going to lose that battle? Because Zechariah 14 says that the houses are going to be plundered. You know, the, the women raped, the, half the people carried into captivity. What does Christ say to do about it? He doesn't say, you know, Stay in, uh, when you see that, stay in your house and pray that maybe you'll escape. He says, he says, no, take some kind of defensive action. And this is great wisdom. You know, when we know there's some disaster coming, boy, you know, there are times when you might get a revelation where all you're supposed to do is pray. But there's a lot of times where the revelation is figure out what the wisest thing is to do about the situation and get doing it. You know, it's so important. Wisdom, what Proverbs uh, 4, 7, wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. Knowing what to do about a tough situation is so important. It's so important. And here's Christ reading Zechariah 14. You know, the city's going to be plundered and all this horrible stuff is going to happen. And so what's he say in verse 20? He's talking to his disciples. He loves these guys. He wants them and their families to be safe. So he looks, he says in verse 20, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that her desolation is drawn near. Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Those who are in the midst of her must leave. And don't let those who are in the country enter her. Don't think you're going to be safe in Jerusalem and go back to Jerusalem. You go the opposite way because those are the day of vengeance to fulfill all that's written because there were plenty of prophecies against Judah and Jerusalem because of all the sins they had committed. So Christ said, boy, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, get out. So we're back in Zechariah chapter 14. And so verse three is we're in the tribulation and these nations have come and attacked Jerusalem. And one verse three, then Yahweh will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights in a day of battle. And it doesn't mean that God himself, but God in the person of his Messiah, just like in the gospels, when it reads about, you know, God healing, Jesus Christ is the one doing the healing, uh, you know, that type of thing. So here Yahweh's fighting. What's Yahweh doing? He's fighting in the person of his Messiah. 
Messiah, by empowering his Messiah. Absolutely. We see this battle, for example, this exact battle, Armageddon, we see it in Isaiah chapter 63, Revelation chapter 14, uh, that kind of thing. Verse 4, in Christ, his feet will stand that day on the Mount of Olives that's in front of Jerusalem, before Jerusalem, it's on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west, making a very great valley. Half the mountain will move toward the north, half of it toward the south. And then verse 5, you'll flee by the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains will reach Ozel. Yes, you will flee just like you fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Yahweh, my God, will come and all the holy ones with you. So this is the battle of Armageddon. All of a sudden, you know, there's going to be a shift because after Christ fights the battle of Armageddon, he's going to win. And then he's got to set up his kingdom on earth. (laughs) But, But the problem is the earth is a complete mess. And so what's Christ got to do? Well, he and God have got to fix the earth. And Zephaniah is going to tell us about the day that the earth is fixed, which has to be between the, the, the time that Christ actually conquers the earth, Satan is bound, and the enemies of, of Christ are killed off, which we read about in Revelation chapter, the end of Revelation 19, the start of Revelation chapter 20, and before the resurrection of the just and people are allowed into the kingdom in the sheep and goat judgment. And there's going to be a time period in there that Zechariah calls the unique day. So he's just conquered the earth in Zechariah 4 and 5 and verse 6. It will happen in that day that there will not be light or cold or frost. It will be a unique day that is known to Yahweh. And I love that. It's known to Yahweh. You know, you and I can learn some things about this day, but we're not going to know all there is to know because this is a unique day that's known to Yahweh. And I love this. And it says it's not day and it's not night and it's not light and it's not cold and there's no frost. And so there's this this time period in there that God calls a day. Now, maybe it lasts a day, a little longer, whatever. But what what is going to happen during this day? Well, going into this day, the earth is a complete mess. I mean, let's talk about the food, for example. Now you go to the grocery store and, you know, you have to look for labels that say non-GMO because people have messed with the structures on a genetic level. People are messing with the genetics of animals. Well, that's not how God operates. God designed the the animals. He doesn't need them modified for us. But there's all these GMO plants and animals. What's the water like? Gosh, I just read in the news yesterday about a man in Florida. He went bathing in the ocean off Destin, Florida. Within 48 hours, he was dead of flesh-eating bacteria. You got to be kidding me. Really? Where did that come from? And I don't want that in my water. It's a little spooky, frankly, because I love going to the ocean. You know, and the and the, the soil has been polluted and the my gosh, there's so much dispersed plastic all over the world now in the air. The whole world is simply a mess. It is simply a mess. And when God created the plants and animals, you know, let's just take a quick look in Genesis. Uh, Genesis chapter one. And in Genesis chapter one, verse 30, we read, here's God speaking and he says to every animal of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth in which there is living soul, I have given every green herb for food. What did the animals eat? 
in God's original creation when there was the Garden of Eden? What did the animals and the birds eat? There wasn't these carrion birds that ate meat. There weren't animals that were carnivorous. Everything ate plants in the Garden of Eden. By the way, People ate plants too, Adam and Eve. That's what they ate. They ate plants. And what about the Garden of Eden? You see, you and I have a hard time understanding the Garden of Eden because when the Bible was translated, the translators made the decision to take the Hebrew word Eden, which means delight, and transliterate it as E-D-E-N rather than translate it as delight. So, for example, in Genesis 2.15, what do we read? Yahweh God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to work it and to care for it. If you were reading this in the Hebrew language, what you would read is Yahweh God took the man, put him in the Garden of Delight to work it and to care for it. So God made Eden a delight. And the world was supposed to be a delight. It wasn't supposed to be this old, nasty, polluted place with dangerous animals and GMO food and all this other stuff. The, the whole world was to be this wonderful delight. And then we are further, not only do we read Eden instead of delight in the text, but then it doesn't help that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew and the New Testament was written in Greek, because then when Christ talked about the Garden of Eden or Paul talked about the Eden, then that was lost in translation, literally lost in translation, because when the Greeks translated the Old Testament into Greek, about 250 BC, and they came to Eden, the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Delight, they made the decision they would translate Eden into Greek as paradesos. Now, you can imagine what paradesos in Greek came through the Latin into English as paradise. That becomes very important. So, if you're reading the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it doesn't say the Garden of Eden. It says the Garden of Paradise, or sometimes just paradise. Oh, paradise. It's a place on earth. Every single time paradise occurs in the scripture, in the Old Testament scripture, in the Septuagint, every time the word paradisos occurs, it always refers to a place on earth. Now, here's Luke 23, 43. Luke 23, 43, Jesus Christ is talking to the, the criminal on the cross. In verse 43, he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in the paradise. And notice the Greek text doesn't just say paradise, it says the paradise, because it was the restoration of Eden. The prophecies were that Eden would be restored. Now, we don't know what language Christ was talking to this criminal in. If he was speaking in Hebrew, he would have said, I tell you today, you will be with me in Eden. But if he was speaking Greek, he would say, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradisos, in paradise. But if he was speaking Greek to the criminal, then the Greek would have been reading the Septuagint anyway. The point is that Christ said, the paradise, the Eden is going to be restored. You know the prophecies. You're going to be with me there. Absolutely. What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 12? In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4. Paul is talking about himself, actually. He makes it sound like it's a third person, but he's actually talking about himself. He says that he was taken into paradise and heard unspeakable words that it is not permitted for a person to speak. So Paul says, I was taken into paradise. If Paul was talking about this experience, 
based on his Hebrew past, and he was speaking to Jews in a, in a Jewish synagogue that spoke Hebrew, he would say, I was taken into Eden. And he didn't mean I was taken back to the Garden of Eden. He would mean I was taken into the future Eden, the paradise on earth that will occur when Christ restores the earth. Absolutely. And that's exactly what happens on this unique day. The earth has to be restored so that people have a place to come back to that they're really going to enjoy. Uh, let's go to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11, please. And so we start to see some of the prophecies, and there's many, many, many prophecies in the Old Testament about the restoration of the earth, which is why Christ could say the meek will inherit the earth. So, for example, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, a shoot will come out of the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. And this is talking about the Messiah, verse 2, and the spirit of Yahweh will rest on him. And so then it talks about the Messiah and how, verse 5, righteousness will be the belt of his waist. And then it talks, starting in verse 6, about how the earth is going to be changed back to Eden. It's a mess right now, but God's going to take this unique day that's after the Armageddon, but before the millennial kingdom. And, you know, you can see why God wouldn't really describe what he's going to do in that unique day. I mean, how, you know, you can't talk about, I'm going to, I'm going to remake the genetic package of thorn plants. I'm going to remake the genetic package of lions. And I'm going to, you know, first of all, they wouldn't have a clue. And I'm going to remove the plastic from the oceans. Everybody'd be going, huh? What? <laughs> God couldn't even begin to tell the people of Zechariah's time how terrible the earth would become between, I mean, when, when Zechariah was alive, the earth was a whole bunch better than it is now. And I'm sure that if God told the people of Zechariah's time how terrible the world, the earth, the water on the face of the planet, the air was going to become, they'd be completely scandalized and they should be. And so he just says, look, there's going to be this unique day. Going into it, the world's a mess. Coming out of it, verse six, the wolf will live with the lamb. And I love that. You know, it's nor the normal picture that when you talk about Christians, yeah, they say, yeah, the lion and the lamb. Well, that's talking about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the lion of Judah, and he's the lamb of God. But when we're talking about the paradise, it says in verse 6, the wolf will live with the lamb. Now, why would that be? Because if a lion, typically if a lion attacks a flock of sheep, typically what it'll do is it'll pick one out, kill it, and carry it off. A wolf is, is a horrid animal, a cruel animal. A wolf will go into a flock of sheep and just kill them all. Won't, may eat one or two, but it'll kill them all. And they're just, you know, really just horrible animals. No wonder, you know, the Bible uses wolf to describe these people that just rip uh, congregations apart and kill everybody, you know, kill off the congregation. And that's what happens. But the prophecy is this wolf is going to live with the lamb. And the leopard's going to lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fattened calf together. And a, and a little child's going to lead them. And then verse 7, the cow and the bear will graze. Their young ones will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. Oh, wow, back to Eden. The nursing child will play near a cobra's hole, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of Yahweh like the waters 
cover the sea. Absolutely. We go to Isaiah 35. See, I have to be careful because, I mean, we could read like dozens of prophecies like this. The prophecies of the restored earth, the air being wonderful, the sun being bright and clean, the the water being wonderful, the the deserts being healed, uh, people being healed, people being blessed. So many prophecies like this. And God's God just says, well, you know, yeah, that seems like a lot. I'm going to do it in one day. It's going to be a unique day. I'm going to do it all in one day. So Isaiah chapter 35, starting in verse one, the wilderness and the dry land will be glad. The dry land, you know, the deserts, the desert will rejoice and blossom like a rose. It will blossom abundantly and rejoice even with joy and singing. Lebanon's glory will be given to it. And the splendor of Carmel and Sharon, and these are areas that were known to be a little wetter. They will see Yahweh's glory, the splendor of our God, verse 6, part B, for waters will break out in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand, verse 7, will become a pool and the thirsty ground will become springs of water in the habitation of jackals, you know, kind of the deserty area where they lay will be grass with reeds and papyrus. So basically, God's got a lot of work to do to change the world we live in today, back to Eden. And he needs a unique day to do it. And he's reserved for himself this one unique day that's buried away in Zechariah chapter 14. And again, I'm kind of back to Hebrews chapter one. It's like, really, really? You know, you can't just simply have kind of a description of the tribulation and how things are going to be and then talk about, you know, a unique day and how you're going to restore things. And it's all in this nifty little package where I can go to the Bible and read it. And the answer is no. It's exactly what Hebrews says, that God gave the revelation fragmentary in bits and pieces, and you and I are privileged to get to read the scripture and over time just see it fit together and just see the glory of God and and how he's presented himself and what he's going to do. Absolutely. You know, and God is definitely up to the task of reforming the heavens and the earth so that we can live in it and have a great time. And he's going to do it in one unique day. God bless you.